Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 19th, 2013, and this is episode 1210 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. And uh, generally I'm running an interview today because things got kind of jostled around and, and what have you. There's going to be a standalone show. And as me, just me, and I'm going to talk about lessons in homesteading by taking a big step backwards. I'm going to tell you some of the challenges we've had this year and, and you know how it kind of weighs on you when you've had such success in the past and you have to start over. I think it's a good show for people that are maybe frustrated because they look at what other people are doing and go, why can't I do that? And the answer is you can. Some systems just take time to get up and running. So I'm going to share with you some of my own struggles this year and uh, how it's it's a trap where I start comparing you know this year to last year, uh, a mature system to a young one, and, and how that can weigh on you and, and things you can do about it and what we're doing going forward. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. Marjorie Wildcraft is awesome. Let me just put it that way. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need to get her DVD series called Growing Your Groceries. From protein to carbohydrates, animal to mineral, uh, water, and everything in between, she will show you what to do to turn your backyard into that food production machine, whether you're on a tenth of an acre in the city, ten acres in the uh, outskirts, or a hundred acres out and about in the uh, deep rural uh, areas like she is. Anything in between, these things can be scaled up and down to meat. Check her out at uh, BackyardFoodProduction.com. The best way to get to her, though, really for all our sponsors, but especially for her, come to the SurvivalPodcast.com and click on her banner. She's got a special deal for all TSP listeners, and you won't get it unless you go through our link. Uh, additionally, if you are a Support Brigade member, you get an even better deal, so check your benefits section before you uh, before you uh, buy from BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Forger's Defense Consultants. It's completing what I call the triangle of gun operator efficiency. Three things to gun operator efficiency. Good weapon, don't have a gun, you're not a gun operator because there's no gun. Ammo, good quality ammo, lots of it for training and lots of it if the shit hits the fan and lots of it for putting food on the table. you got to have ammo. Gun, no ammo. Expensive club, possibly a barter item or something you can pawn for a little bit of money, but it, it doesn't really do its job without the ammunition to go in it. And the completing factor, the one that's most overlooked, is the operator himself. You need training for that. And the best place I know to get training out there today is Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank uh, Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors. Check them out at FortressDefense.com. Remember, if you can't travel to his school, if you can put together a group, get in touch with him. He'll set up training in your area and come to you. Again, FortressDefense.com. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about the relaunch of 13 Skills. Get on over there. Uh, get your progress updates. Start connecting with other people in your skill development in 2013. 13skills.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, I've got another really awesome discount program coming for you. It'll probably be announced by tomorrow, if not early next week. Um, say you're going to like it. I keep building the value of the members' support brigade for you to make it worth more than you pay for it. Fifty bucks a year. Uh, you look at that, 
by the episodes, it means you're supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. And first responders like EMP, EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Uh, you can also get a discount. Just email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. And in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service and save you even more money. I don't disclose the amount of the discount, but it's significant. I'll put it to you that way. All right, we got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. And I want to do our quick little history segment. It's episode 1210. So what happened in the year 1210? wasn't the most eventful year, but there are some things in it that show us the consistency of things throughout history. Um, in England, King John, remember, England was deep in war with France at this time. They were broke. Governments spending more than they have. You know, pff, what a shock. King John raises a hundred thousand pounds from church property as an extraordinary fiscal levy. The operation is uh, is described as inestimable and incomparable uh, extraction by contemporary sources. In other words, you can't even really estimate how much this hurt the people that the money was taken from, and there was nothing to compare it to, and the money was simply extracted. Because authority existed to do so. So remember, the king has already been excommunicated by the church. So now he's raiding the church. And, uh, the ch local churches, that is, within his, uh, his kingdom. It takes a hundred thousand pounds. A hundred thousand pounds is a significant amount of money today. But in 1210? Consider that in about 1910, um, The hourly wage on average in the United States was 20 cents. In 1910, this is 1210. So we're talking about a literal king's fortune just seized from the people because the king needed it. Yeah. Uh, one other thing happened. Otto IV, Holy Roman Emperor, was excommunicated by Pope Innocent III for invading southern Italy. So the Holy Roman Arab Emperor was uh, excommunicated. Um, I want to flash forward to about 1218 because uh, Otto came to a death. Um, and let me read you about his death. He died of disease at Hartsburg uh, Castle on May 19th, 1218, requesting that he be mortally expiated in atonement for his sins. Expiated means made to suffer in his death to atone for his sins. Historian Catornitz described the death as gruesome. Quote, disposed and dethroned, he was flung full length onto the ground by the abbot, confessing his sins while the reluctant priests beat him bloodily to death. Such was the end of the first and last wealth emperor. So, The reason I bring that up is to paint for you a picture of what it was like in the 1200s and the control that the church had on the mind of people. So this emperor, driven like most in power, ignores everything he's told he needs to do in life for the gains of power, seeks power, obtains power, loses power at the same time, so he has successes and defeats that I won't go into today. But at the end of his life, he's dying of disease. He knows he's going to die. So this isn't a guy that said, like, kill me because, like, I deserve to die. 
and I want to try to atone before I'm dead so I can go to heaven instead of hell. This is the guy that's like, I'm going to die. I know I'm dying. I'm at the end. And I'm instead of just letting, you know, nature take its course, I'm going to have a bunch of priests beat me to death while I confess my sins. And the priests did it. Reluctantly, but they did it. And the abbot throws him full length onto the ground. So you got a dying, sick emperor hurled to the ground by a church head and then beaten to death by priests. Such was the control of the mind by the church in the year 1200 that even a mighty emperor would submit to the church as he faced his maker, so to speak. Um, you think maybe, you think maybe, just maybe, such events of history were known and studied by the men that founded our republic when they decided that church and state should be separated. Just saying. As I always say with this segment, the more things change, in some ways, the more they stay the same. There's still a lot of mental control by authority, be it uh, religious authority or governmental authority. Most of what people submit to today, they do so voluntarily, and in many times they submit to convention and ideology and things that they have to do, that there actually isn't a law that says they have to do them. Now, there's plenty of laws that do, but there's a lot of people living their lives in very much misery because they believe that they're forced to do these things. And I'm not talking about religion here now. I'm talking about that that just was the dominant driver of the time in 1210. I'm talking about convention and what people think of as normal and expected behavior in our society today. Much of it is not enforced, but it's done psychologically. Conformism. Everybody goes to college. Everybody takes a bunch of debt. Okay? There's a lesson there. I'll leave it to you to discover for yourself and think about how it relates to an emperor having himself beaten to death because he believed that was necessary. All right. Going on, today's show is, is, is about kind of taking a big step backward in homesteading uh, when you make a move. And what that teaches us, if you're planning on a move, what you're in for. Because you forget. You forget how much work went into getting it successful the first time. And it's also like some words of encouragement for those that are starting out and going, why doesn't this stuff work the way it does on YouTube? And, and the reason is because people don't generally video failures. And even if they do, there's not much to see. And many people that are happy to share their failures with you, like I am, are like, if I show you failure, I'm just showing you blank space. You know, it's more interesting to show you what is working uh, versus just show you the spot where nothing grew or or, so, or something died. Um, but we do need to, to think about this. And I, and I want to talk about, first off, you know, what I mean by going from abundance backwards. Last year at this time, my wife and I were cutting up so many jalapenos that on one harvest it took three days just to get them ready for the dehydrator. Just sitting there cutting them. Three days of work. Uh, now, we didn't work eight hours a day doing it. We worked as long as we could tolerate it and then went and did something else. We came back and did it again. That was just one thing. 
We had already taken bag after bag of produce to local church. There was a church in town. We weren't members or anything, but it was like they did a food bank. They had a thing called the Master's Table, uh, where they fed people every week and they gave out food in, you know, in addition to what they, what they did to feed people. And we were literally taking two, three bags a week of food down there and giving it to them. Cause like, this is more than we can store. It's more than we can eat. This is just, it, it has to go somewhere. This is a good venue to get it in other people's hands. Um, The neighbors who, you know, as we were getting ready to move up there and starting to put systems in place and, you know, during the first part of the year we moved in there, they kind of shake their heads in mockery at us. You know, they saw us gathering all this rotted wood up for Hugo culture and stuff like that and doing things in a way they would never do, planting things that weren't really edible first before we planted things that were edible. Now they would just shake their head in awe at the abundance. None of them had ever seen anything done like this. They would just stand there and look at it. And I mean, we hadn't even really got into the perennials yet. We had just started to establish the perennials. This was mostly annual production. Um, and we did this in a rocky, granite-ridden ridgetop. Um, no one thought we could do this. Like, everybody there that was gardening was doing it with some sort of container gardening. Nobody was really growing anything in the ground or even raised beds. Uh, and we did it. We brought in heavy equipment to do it, too. And that was something that, like, you know, you brought in an excavator to put in some garden beds. Well, yeah, consider the location. Um, some of our results, we had over a 1,000 peppers for the jalapenos uh, from 24 plants in one harvest. And that wasn't, like, the big harvest. We had plenty of harvest. But toward the end of the year, in a big harvest, a 1,000 peppers off 24 plants. Uh, we got 25 watermelons. From one four foot by ten foot bed. Um, we had trees that they said, you know, you can only grow these like zones two to five. It's too hot down there. Surviving in a rock and granite in zone seven with hundred degree days and, and, and beginning to flourish. Um, but as most of you know, my wife wasn't happy at the time. She was happy with where we lived. She'd really come to love the place, love the home, love what we had done to it. <clears throat> it was very transformational for her. I think she needed the time because she had just left work when we finally moved. And uh, she needed the time to read and reflect and separate herself mentally from a conventional medical society that she had been part of for over 20 years and basically had been brainwashed to believe everything drug reps and doctors said. And, and that separation from... You know, the main, you know, we lived remote and, and not having the family around and everything was good and a great growth thing for her. She got much more into, you know, let's get animals at some point. Let's let's do this stuff. And she would come out and harvest and work with me. And a lot of the things that she really wasn't interested in knowing about, she grew with that. And she loved that, too. But the separation from our family was just more than she wanted to deal with. And I could just tell she was miserable. So it was about a two-year journey. And we made the decision to come back to Texas. And today we're doing a new challenge. There's a lot of work we've done. The foundation is really set well for next year. But this year's been tough. And today's really about what it's taught me. And the reality is when you go from that kind of abundance to starting over, especially in a harsh environment that's been not to see, like when we moved to Arkansas, that place was harsh and needed a lot of help. But it had never really been harmed. Like there was a piece pushed out, you know, and that piece was damaged to put the house in. Um, but it kind of cut in behind this other place that had just been kind of cleared. But it never really been bulldozed or damaged or hurt. It hadn't been abused agriculturally. It was it was pretty um, 
nutrient deficient with organic matter, but it hadn't really been harmed. So then we move here, and the land has been hurt multiple times, and it's a harsh environment. We've got shallow soils. Uh, we've got you know um, ocean floor caliche bedrock. Uh, just you know, in some places a few inches, in other places a few feet under the surface. We've got soil that has amazing potential, but right now, in the words of our guest yesterday, he was right when he said it's dead, right? And we're trying to bring it back to life. And we've had some successes, but this year is not like last year. This year, I'm getting enough jalapenos here and there to make some salsa or to make some guacamole. You know, not even enough to do my patented peppers with bacon on the grill. If I want to do that, I have to buy them in the ones this time of year. I don't know why, but this time of year in the stores, they're crap, right? So... I went from, you know, just pulling squashes and pumpkins and tomatoes and sweet peppers and just, I mean, watermelons and cantaloupes and just ungodly amounts of food. Cucumbers, like, just like you pick them and the next day you're like, where the hell did all these new ones come from? So, like, we get a few here, a few there. But the sorghum did great and that was kind of a trial just to see how it would do. And um, the amaranth did pretty good. But those are just some things that we were doing to, You know, basically I'm cutting down whole amaranth plants now and throwing them in with the chickens and letting them strip them bare. Um, and we put in all these great gardens and stuff. And we do have some successes. I don't, I don't want to underplay some of the successes, but it's not like last year. A lot of weeds came up in the pathways. I should have done those differently. I should have cardboarded them, but I was running a workshop. I wanted everybody to be able to see everything within three days, so we couldn't get the materials. So I'm like, we'll just deal with it. We didn't get the drip irrigation in in time, so I ended up watering conventionally. That encouraged a lot more grass to grow on the paths. We're now ripping the paths back out, cardboarding them, putting them down, getting the beds cleaned up. We'll probably have to not do as much with fall gardening as I would like to because all of the beds need to be remulched and papered and, and, and set up with drip irrigation before I get deeper into the perennials that I want to put into that system. Um, all of that weighs on you. And I want you to understand that the reality is it's, it's a lot of it's psychological. This is true for the new person and it's true for the person that's, that's taken that step backwards to a new property and starting over. It also gets to be more difficult when you're blogging about it or podcasting about it and you've established some expertise because you feel like, well, I'm supposed to be able to do this, right? And you are doing it, but because it doesn't come up to the level of what you've done before, you feel like it's a failure. The other side of that is uh, for people that are doing it for the first time because it doesn't come up to the level that somebody else did, they feel like it's a failure. It's not a failure. Different systems have been damaged in different ways, and it take different levels of intensiveness to recover and establish. You can go in and throw a few conventional raised beds in and get some quick success, and we could have done that um, instead of just doing the, the contour beds. We could have put in a few beds just for tomatoes and peppers, done them with fill, uh, immediately put in drip irrigation, brought them closer to the home than this long-term system of hugel beds on contour that I have out there. And looking back on it, we should have. We really should have. I should have went down to Home Depot, bought some 10-foot sections of 2x8, and put in some conventional raised beds, went down to the Silver Creek materials, got the best quality fill dirt they had, filled them up, put in four, six of those, spent a few hundred bucks on it, and done our conventional gardening in those beds. Now, will I be able to do everything that those beds will do and more with this system by next year? Yes. 
Might I still put some in like that anyway? Yeah, because there's certain things and certain crops that a flat, straight bed gives you some advantageous things in doing and being able to monitor it, keep it closer to the home. And because I want to dedicate a lot of that to perennials and larger plantings, things that get shaded out um, might do better in those systems. So I'm currently like, where exactly do we put some raised beds like that? So I could have made my life easier, but I got like a dog-headed determinedness that this is the thing to do now. And it, it, it worked out. And there's two things in there right now that are blowing and going that I'm really excited about. One, uh, I've got Japanese purple sweet potato growing underneath some sorghum like I have never seen before in my life. And that bed, when ready to harvest, I guarantee you is going to produce an abundance of sweet potato. And Jerusalem artichoke. The Jerusalem artichokes are amazing. They're eight feet high. Going like crazy, whole beds full. I tried to polyculture them with um, with blackberry, which seemed like something that you know would compete with each other. They killed blackberry. Um, I, there might be the potential to save the blackberry plants this year when we when we you know when the Jerusalem artichokes die back, save the crowns and move them somewhere else. I don't know if they die. Four cheap blackberry plants bit the dust. No problem. I could do that somewhere else next year. Um, so those are big successes, and the, the the flowers on the Japanese sweet potato right now are really pretty. So we have these, you know, the sorghum booming, the the amaranth booming, you know. So some things did well, but most of the peppers got shaded out. My one bed that I really managed for jalapenos, you guys know the story if you've been around, got hit with hail and just ravaged. Only three of those plants made it, and I kind of just got depressed, and I didn't really even take care of those, and they've survived. And now they're starting to even really, because the heat's breaking a little bit, they're starting to kind of pick up. And I might get a few big harvests off of them, but it's just not the same. Uh, one watermelon plant has a huge watermelon on it. All the rest of it got tore up. Um, I think the people that were here before uh, were like growing squash bugs as a hobby. I mean, squash plants usually got hit hard with uh, with squash bugs, but I mean, this year, like a squash would get like two leaves on it and would just get eaten to the ground by squash bugs. And I had vine borers in 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 squash vines that were only two inches long, killed before they even got started in the early spring when they're not even supposed to be out. I mean, it was just on a lot of levels a complete failure, and that helps you in so many ways. Because what happens is somebody emails you a question about a problem. You're just like, all you got to do is this, this, and this. And it's not that the answer is wrong. It's that you present the answer is so simplistic and so simple that you're doing the person asking the question a disservice. Because it may, first of all, it may not work. And this is something that I've always known and I've always tried to caution people with. People have asked me why I don't like uh, the film on the Eden Gardens, the Back to Eden Films uh, Eden Garden. Um, number one, because it's not an Eden Garden, it's mulching with wood. That's all that it is. That's all that it is. That's all that it is. And it's something that people have been doing for decades and decades and decades. I was mulching with wood for my grandfather when I was freaking nine years old. It's, it's just one, uh, technique. But fine. You want to call it something? That's marketing. That's fine. And, and what have you. But the other reason is because it's presented as this will work anywhere, every time, all the time. And it's just not the case. There's places where if you lay down four inches of mulch, the, the soil will go anaerobic on you. And there's places where if you lay down two inches of mulch, it's not enough. 
Uh, everything has to be fine-tuned to the place that you're at. And often, you fine-tune it subconsciously. And like, somebody says, well, why are you doing that? I don't know. It just works, right? Well, how much mulch is on this bed? About an inch, okay? It's mostly peppers. How much mulch is over here? About four inches. Well, that's mostly perennials and it's a forest system, so it's fungal. And you're like, yeah, but I'm really not. Just basically, that's how it worked out. Like, this worked good. I put that much there. That didn't work, so I removed some of it. It took off. What's over here? That's not mulched with wood at all. That's mulched with, you know, cut hay, basically, or straw. I grew my own mulch. That's a mixture of batch and, and well, why'd you do that? Because these plants are more delicate and they cover the ground and they don't really need as much mulch. And I wanted the organic matter and I wanted the soil to breathe and, You just lose sight of all these little things that you do on your property, and you, you start teaching this blanket approach, and then you convince yourself that that's the way that it is. And it's not. Life is a dynamic web, and changing the amount of rainfall you get a year, and not changing your, you know, your solar aspect, your land, whatever. I don't care what it is. Everything else is the same. Same latitude, launch, you know, can be same latitude and longitude, but same latitude uh, and climate basically the same, except one place you live, and I don't mean massively, like well, it's a desert versus the tropics, right? I'm saying, let's say in one place you get 40 inches of rain a year, another inch place you get 30. Well, 30 is plenty. Yeah, but it's not 40. If you're irrigating, it shouldn't matter. Yeah, it still does. Rain does things beyond provide water. There's, there's life in rain that's not necessarily in irrigated water. Uh, you're using irrigation. Well, you're pulling water. In one location, we were pulling water from 600 feet underground. Just the greatest water you could ever get your hands on. Here we're pulling water from a much more shallow aquifer, highly alkaline, high sulfur content. Lots of mineralization. Has a lot of benefits. Isn't the same, though. Not as beneficial. And you, you, if when you tell somebody, well, it works everywhere, it does... But it doesn't work the same way everywhere, and it might need some secret sauce. And you have to figure out your own secret sauce for your own location. And not acknowledging that is a disservice to anybody you're trying to teach or even impress. Because it does two things simultaneously that are bad on both sides of the equation. Number one, it's actually less impressive. Because you're not acknowledging the fact that you had to work to find the little tweaks. But two, it's a disservice to the person trying to learn from you because they're not now expecting to have to do that. And you say, well, then how does everybody find success eventually? You'll do it. You'll find the tweaks. It's just a good idea to, to know that those tweaks are there and to look for them. Um, I want to talk about some of the unique challenges on our property and some of the, then some of the plans that we have to move ahead after that. And uh, I think we have a good plan, and I think it'll definitely work. Um, and I'm not here to be you know, on any kind of pity party or something like that, if, if you wanted to put it that way. I just want to acknowledge what we're dealing with. And some of you have heard before, and maybe some of you haven't, how I'm learning to harness those problems into solutions. One of the unique challenges is we do have a lot less rain. I think we got 48 inches of rain in Arkansas the year that I'm talking about. We had all this abundance. Um, and we still had a very dry summer. 
I don't want you to get the wrong impression like it rained every month like that. Like We had torrential flooding rains in the spring and a very, very dry, hot summer. I would tell you that the summer we had last year in Arkansas was hotter than the summer we've had this year in Texas. But we had more rain. And rain creates life in the, the, the eco-web. Um, so less rain. And, and that rain had other effects because we were surrounded by forest. Here we're surrounded by scrub and, and fellow suburbanites that are outside of the suburbs, right? We're like, we're like suburbia light out here. Everybody's got an acre to 10 acres and spread out. You can do whatever you want, but there's still a lot more people here and a lot less of a true forest. Though I do have a forest behind me. It's, it's not, you know, a thousand acres of forest that I was surrounded by. So that the rain that does come has left of this life to generate from the existing ecosystem. And that's fine. We'll plant our own forest. But it's important to acknowledge that so that you ha understand why something might not have worked as well here as it did there. And rain is a big part of it. And in some ways, we have less soil. And what I mean by that is, um, in a lot of ways, this is easier soil to work with. It's black. I didn't have any black soil in Arkansas. Every, all, every black piece of soil in Arkansas was either in the forest which I didn't want to disturb and take away, um, or I brought it in, or I built it. The, the soil was mostly white and orange, right? Clay and, and silt and silica and granite. And you couldn't get anything, in the, that's what the same is. You couldn't get a pole in the ground there, and you couldn't hear. But when we brought heavy equipment in, digging down two to three feet wasn't hard. So there was a lot of rock there, but it wasn't, Except in a few places where it outcropped, and outcroppings were like, you know, like you're basically looking at Mother, Mother Earth. And the place where I have the old videos with the bag garden there, that was the case. The rock was right to the surface. But a lot of the other property, you could dig down two, three, four feet before you hit that, that bedrock. It was just chunk rock. And an excavator pulls chunk rock out like nothing. Where here we have places where we dig down six inches, eight inches, and you're not looking at a piece of rock. You're looking at a slab of rock. So hydrating this soil is a bigger challenge. and that's. But the soil itself is, is a better organic-based soil. So it's this, this thing where it has this amazing potential. And a lot of that initial slab is chunky, cracky, you know, high-calcium ocean floor. And if we can get things into those cracks and crumbling it, we can actually convert it into soil. We can build soil massively. In some ways we have more to work with, in some ways we have less. The biggest challenge is the, the water reserve. It's hard to hold a lot of water when you're only looking at a foot of dirt it, compared to hold, you know, holding water in six feet of dirt. Very, very important that we understand that. Uh, damaged land is just harder to work with. Has, has, has man done something Or has some natural disaster done something to truly damage the land? And the answer here is, in many ways, yes. This is old rangeland, so it was grazed with cattle for decades. Um, now, this is going back to the 50s and earlier, before that's the case, but this was basically nothing but free-range cattle country, and it was never managed. It was just grazed. Um, part of it was actually, uh, for a while, a mobile home park. Um, And that's like my, my west pasture that's really in bad shape. There were several mobile homes there at one time. 
It was before my house that I live in was ever built. Uh, those went away, and the guy that built this house acquired that piece of property along with the other two acres and turned it into a three-acre property. But when he put this house in, anything that didn't look the way he wanted it, he just hit it with a bulldozer and moved it. Um, and then he did no management, and he wasn't organic in the things that he did. He didn't really grow any food from my understanding of talking to the neighbors. And if there were fire ants, he threw down fire ant poison. And if, you know, so, I mean, if he needed the grass to be greener and the part that he wanted to be green, uh, he threw down fertilizers. And, you know, eventually he didn't even care about that anymore. And um, it just kind of wasted. And then a family moved in that were uh, fundamental LDS. So this is the fundamental Mormons. Uh, polygamist, from my understanding, at least that's the guess of the neighbors really weren't sure. Uh, but you know, a couple women, one guy, like 12 kids, and they made a go at being organic. All the, the products they left behind were organic. They put in those garden beds that were just a disaster, but they, they tried. Um, they brought in goats. The goats were not controlled. They were allowed to free range graze, and they took that damaged west pasture and they made it even worse. But they did leave behind some residual fertility. Um, but they really kind of like, they did everything almost right, and that actually did more damage. So by the time I get here, I've got shallow, denuded, dead soils, multiple damage to the land, severe erosion to where the contour map uh, from USGI versus the actual contours are very, not a little, they're always going to be different. Very, very, very different. Very, very, very different. Um, land that's been hit both with toxins and just poor quality management. Land that's had livestock on it improperly managed. And places where it's just gravel and caliche and places where it's pretty good. And everywhere is pretty much compacted. And now you got to start over. And that's just harder. And the reason I point that out is you can do it. And when you have the results, they're that much more impressive. And we've already had some things that, you know, we can show some photos and people are like, wow, I can't believe you did that. But then you're still looking at it going, it ain't anywhere near where it needs to be. And this is a multi-year journey to get this into something that's really amazing. And as you're out looking at homesteads, you have to ask yourself, is that what I'm willing to do to pay less for land? Or do I want to upfront the money? Because you're going to put the money in one way or another. There's a cost associated with all of the things that we have to do. And in some ways, it's it's better this way because we can prorate the cost out over time versus have to put it into a mortgage. But in other ways, we're losing the time. And there's sometimes I look at society and go, you know, if we have a breakdown right now, if things go south right now, we were in a much stronger position a year ago than we are today. And that's the antithesis of what I teach. I, I do not teach moving backwards. But sometimes moving backwards is necessary. You know, I mean... I have to say, the first year we were in Arkansas, we were probably, from a food security standpoint, behind where we were in Arlington. But we were in a physical security point where we're ahead. Now we're behind on both. We have alternate plans. Don't get me wrong. But my plan, my primary plan, is when things go south, if they go south, depending on how they go south, the first thing we're going to want to do is stay put. And in some ways, we have a lot more security now. I mean, I've got neighbors that, you know, as soon as we explained who we were, they're like, yeah, brother, we're on board. Yeah. I mean, I've got some neighbors that, like, they're really good people and all, but they're and, and they're on board mentally, but they don't have the capability. But I've got, I can put together a fire team. Let me put it to you that way, real quick. 
And I got people ready and willing and ready to go um, if it came down to that. Um, and people with assets, uh, and I don't just mean money, I mean the equipment that they need, the knowledge that they need. I mean, from a standpoint of community, we are far stronger. From a standpoint of product, protein productivity, just having a flock of hens that are laying us you know, nine, ten eggs a day, um, when we can find them all, usually we're getting six or seven. Uh, Joe just found 13 under his Bronco um, yesterday. But, I mean, we have that. We didn't have that. And it would have been difficult with the predator problems uh, that we had in Arkansas to really do much with chickens other than completely caging them in, which I don't like to do. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're ahead and behind. And that's interesting. Um, I also want to say animals are a lot more work than I remember, but they're also more productive. I remember taking care of, you know, the, the, the chickens and the geese that we had when I was a kid, and maybe that's why I went to chickens and geese first, because I've experienced with them, and it just didn't seem to be as much work as it is today. I don't know if it's because, you know, I'm raising meat chickens, and you're more, we lost another one yesterday. Um, they ran out of water. We're not sure why. They somehow managed to spill water they shouldn't have been able to spill. It wasn't that hot. None of the other birds had stress. Uh, we caught it right away. We immediately got water to him. One was down. We tried to save him. He, he didn't make it. But we're not sure it really was the heat because none of the other birds were even panting when this happened. So, uh, but you, you know, you're dealing with a large number of birds versus just a laying flock. And, you know, we tried, we made it harder than it had to be. We went straight to Freedom Rangers. Uh, we never brooded them. We had them out on the, on pasture at, when they're three days old. Well, that cost us some losses early on as well. So, um, but it's, it's, it's far more work than I remember. But as I start looking at these things now, and they're half the size of my land birds, uh, and they got another month to go to grow out, I'm going, man, that's, that, I, that's a lot of productivity. That's a lot of meat. And in the return for the work, it's a lot easier than growing vegetables and fruits. So there are more work. And then the eggs. And I look at the geese, and the geese are highly self-sufficient. The geese, they just want to come out and walk around and, and get into the good grass uh, once a day. We let them out in the evening when we're out there so they don't crap on the porch and we can keep them out of the garden. We're not even moving them in paddocks anymore. You just, wherever you want them to be, you just kind of hang out there with them, take them out like a shepherd does with sheep, and they're happy. They, they want to be where you are. So uh, I look at those, and I, I'm looking at these birds that are like 14, 16 pounds now. I'm going, we could be eating them, but next year they're going to lay eggs, and we're going to get uh, a lot more birds for slaughter out of their prodigy than taking them, and we'll probably grow our flock a little bit next year as well with some that we'll keep. And I, I, you know, I start realizing, okay, well, if we just grow 12 of these things a year, that's a goose a month. And a goose is like a meal and then like two or three after meals. And you don't do that with vegetables. You don't do that with fruits and nuts. So they're a lot more work, but a lot more productive. And they're giving us the biology, the manure, the nutrient, and being part of the workforce around here. Um, and we're learning how to harness them better. And I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, the last thing I've learned is you often don't know as much as you think you do. What happens is you get very, very good at the things that you're doing in the place that you are. And every day, if you're engaged and you're practicing permaculture of observe and interact, you become more and more fine-tuned. And I liken it to, you know, when I grew up as, as uh, fishing, 
I was very um, active as a trout fisherman. Not so much with flies. I did a little bit of that, but spin fishing. Streams, creeks, rivers, things like that. And when you start out, you can hit some fish. And you study and you learn from others and things like that. And you're pretty good. You can bring home a string or a trout. But in time, because, you know, when everybody else is off doing something else, you're taking all your time on those streams, you end up starting to read little ripples in the water. You know there's a fish there. You have these little pockets that you can see. And you take that little light, you know, ultralight spinning reel and that, that, that bait without even a weight on it. You know, it's just a mealworm and a light line and a hook, and that's all the weight you have. You don't know how to flick it, and it just goes in. And somebody watching you do it, it's just like, how do you do that? And it's just because you've done it every day. And you've gotten very, very good at that. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you find yourself on the bow of a boat in Florida trying to skip a pinfish underneath the dock, holes bigger, rods bigger, there's more weight there, it should be easier, and it is once you learn the techniques, but you end up with, and the pinfish is knocked dead off the side of the dock, and you got to put a new one on, you're trying to skip it up under there for a snook. And it's the same, but different. And you haven't fine-tuned the memory, the observation, the motor skills to this new reality. And then you then realize, I'm not as good as I think I am. And it's a very good thing to realize. Because number one, you realize if I did it there, I can do it here. And you actually become better. You become better as a student and you become better as a teacher. You become more developed as a full human being. It makes me think of Masanuba Fugora when he said, farming is not about, and it's a paraphrase, not about the cultivation of plants, but the, the cultivation and perfection of human beings. And if you're going to do that, you can't just stay in one place. You've got to challenge yourself. And you can challenge yourself in one location by doing new things with it. And those will be your failures. And what you start to realize is the more success you have, the more comfortable you are with failure. The reason I'm not comfortable with the failures this year or the lack of success so far is because there's not enough corresponding success. Right? If there was a lot more abundance going on, the failures that are there would be a lot, you know, less meaningful. So, biggest lesson this year, you don't know as much as you think you do. And it, it does develop you so much as a human being. And that adversity makes you more prepared for when things go wrong. Because as we know, that's why we prepare, because things do go wrong. So my plan is moving forward. Um, number one, I want to get the food forest mainframe established in the spring of 2014. Um, I'd love to have Jeff Lawton here. I've sent a couple emails to him without hearing back. Um, the guy's busy as hell. I almost feel like it would have been best if I would have just found myself an excavator and just done it with my own knowledge. And I'm thinking about running my workshop in um, in spring 2014 with Nick Bertner, who, who studied under Jeff, if I don't hear back from Jeff soon. And I don't think I'll lose anything by doing that. But one way or another... The mainframe swale systems are going in. It's happening. Um, I will not wait another year to do that. There's too much advantage to beginning to heal the land and stopping erosion by getting those in. So that's definitely going to happen. And um, I'll probably do a standalone post about this today as well, too, because I forgot about it. And Nick and Nick are going to be upset with me for not putting it in the beginning of the show. But I'll, I'll tell you here. Uh, so Nick, Nick Bertner, 
and Nick Ferguson I had on the show last week or two weeks ago, and they're doing a Earthworks workshop in Saline, Louisiana. And uh, they were charging $1,200 or $1,100, something, yeah, $1,100 a student, um, and uh, all up front. And then MSB members got it for $900, got $200 off. Uh, they haven't had enough registrations. They have a lot of people trying to figure out how they can go. Can they make the time work? Can they afford it? So they talked to me about it, and this is what I suggested, and this is what they've done. Number one, MSB people that go, Nick's going to have, Nick, Nick Ferguson's going to have something cool for you. Whatever it is, he hasn't figured it out yet. He's examining some options, like some gifts, just to basically say, I want to thank you, uh, for coming and being MSB. But they're dropping the price to 900 for everybody. And I think one person had paid the higher price, so I guess they'll give him a, a refund, uh, of the, the difference. And then number two, they've made it easier for people to pay by allowing you to do three payments of $300. Uh, I suggest that so. Uh, there's a link in today's show notes where you can learn more about that workshop. I will be co-instructing at that workshop, by the way. I'll be there for like the last two days of it. It's going to be pretty freaking amazing. And I think participating in that, even for only two days, will make me more comfortable with doing this here, you know, with just with Nick and not maybe with, with Jeff. Um, I think my ego of wanting to be able to say, Jeff Lawton designed my property, um, made me delay some things that I should just do. And um, my advice that I got received from Paul Wheaton was, you're Jack Spierko. Your property should be a Jack Spierko property. Sometimes Paul gives really good advice. So that might be what happens. And to all of those that were looking forward to meeting Jeff, if I can still make it happen, I will. But I, I'm starting to see the, the wisdom in that concept as well. Anyway, Food Forest Mainframe will be established in the spring of 2014, and I will do all I can to make it as av available to as many people that want to come and be part of it as possible. Uh, Urban Garden Design is the big workshop we're doing in October. It's about a month away now. Um, I do have like three spots left for it, and uh, I put out a post yesterday. Uh, I can't guarantee you by the time you hear this, they'll still be there, but if you want to come to that, that's going to be awesome. We're going to, you know, the reason I put this together as a workshop was after meeting Nick Bertner, who had worked with Jeff, who I think is just an amazing guy, and realizing he would instruct it, I thought I could bring a bunch of TSPers out here. We can have a blast like we did on the first workshop, and I don't have to teach. <laughs> and when we're done, we'll end up with this collaborative design. But we're basically, each student's going to design and redesign and redesign. And by the end, what we're going to do is take all the designs together and come up with the final working design for what I'm going to build. And the urban garden is designed to work this way. When people come out here to learn, and I, I mean, I have a heart of a teacher, guys. That's why I've done this for over five years as a podcast. I, I know what's going to happen. People are going to come out here, and they're going to go, wow, it's, it's, it's so amazing. You're so lucky. And, it, you know, that's why I'm chronicling how tough it is right now. And I'm going to say, you know, listen to this episode 1210 about what it was like when I got here. But the other thing is beyond that, they're going to go, well, you've got chickens and geese, and you've got this micro food forest and this macro food forest and this urban garden and this and that and it's just you got three acres and not everybody has that and I'm going to say do this this is what can be done in an area that's about the size of a typical urban backyard so it's designed to be yes it's it, part of a larger system but it, as a standalone look what it would provide for you um, so that's the primary motivation there and it really is our zone one Right, it's it, it's very close to the house, and we have some amazing things going on there. 
Uh, so the design will be done in October, but I'm going to stage the, the implementation over about a six-month period. And there may be some workshops for individual components of it, like what we're doing with the aquaculture slash aquaponics portion, uh, possibly with the, the passive irrigation system that will be designed into it and things like that. So that's going to be staged from like October to spring. So that by the time we're doing the mainframe earthworks, it's maybe not finished, but the design's done. So we might still have some plannings to do and things like that, but the irrigation's in, the pathways are in, the spaces are defined, all of that. To deal with the water issue, we're putting in lots of water catchment. Original plan was ponds. I just don't think it's going to work. Um, I think maybe we could put in some raised ponds. I have some ideas on how to do that with liners and do some interesting things with those, but we're not going to have the passive gravity feed of water. Uh, just can't do it. Um, can't really dig down and excavate a pond here with, the, with what's under the ground. No large, large ponds. So first thing is rain catchment. So we've been working on it. We've now completed a 1,500-gallon water catchment system. It's up on two-foot uh, height uh, elevation. It's above just about every piece of ground on the property, so we can move water from it anywhere. Though we, It's only 1,500 gallons, so you're only going to move so much. But it will allow for irrigation of the urban uh, garden and some irrigation of the perennial hugel system that we're you know building off of the stuff we did earlier this year. We also put in rain gutter on the other side of that building, and it will be real easy now to put in a second 1,500-gallon or possibly this time 2,500-gallon tank uh, to route overflow and uh, and things like that too as well. So I think we, we're, we're getting close to skinning that. But I'll get some video for you guys maybe this weekend of the system finished. And hopefully I'll get a chance tomorrow, we're hoping, we have like a 50-60% chance of rain. And if we get rain, it's supposed to be heavy. So we might even end up with full 1,500-gallon tank of rainwater because that opens up what I talked about yesterday where we're able to take the water in the in the pond system. We have about a 1,200-gallon pond system now made up of three stock tanks. And like today I went out to like charge the ground up, and I, I took about 300 gallons of water out of the one pond, just hooked up the hose to uh, the valve that recirculates the water, and then opened the valve up and used the hose and, and watered in that whole area. So even though a lot of material, sheet motioning, and things like that will be brought into the urban garden space, I'm infusing it with life from the ponds. So the plan is not for the 1,500 gallons of water in the rain tank to be used straight as irrigation most times, but for it to recharge the aquaculture system and the water from the aquaculture system to be used for irrigation, which opens up a whole new dynamic of life. And, and that starts to deal a lot with the lack of biodiversity here and, and infusing life back into the system. Um, we've also played around with different ways to move animals and paddock shifting the animals and things like that. And the reality is I just need to accept the fact that there's rock everywhere here. And pushing electrofence netting into the ground is difficult, if not impossible. And if I want to make raising, you know, 50 birds a year in two 25 bird cycles easy for myself, the smartest thing I can do is go, okay, 10 to 12 weeks, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says, right, on certain things like this, like, oh, they shouldn't be there for more than a day. Well, I could set up, 
you know, five, six paddocks for those meat birds. And I can have them in each paddock. You know, like the first one, I can have them there for three weeks. They're little. They don't do as... First of all, you're going to have them in a brooder usually for two weeks, at least, minimum. People say three to four. You know, I, I did it with three days, and we did okay. So two weeks. Then you're going to have them in a... So now you're down on a 12-week cycle to only 10 weeks. If you have five paddocks left, it's two weeks a paddock. They can be planted and ready to go in advance. And we're experimenting that with that right now. And, you know, you add in some sprouted barley and things like that, you've got great quality birds, and your life's easier because you move the birds instead of moving the infrastructure. So I'm in the sta planning stages now of where's the easiest place for me to have basically five permanent paddocks that are big enough for this type of, of a move. And I can move my other animals through them on occasion as well. But I would rather take my permanent animals and get them more into a larger shift system. But the meat birds, let's make it simple. Let's just say, you know, weeks, uh, you know, th three through six, they're here, six and seven, seven and eight, nine and ten, and maybe we go with two extra weeks when we're not doing a workshop and they have to die, eleven and twelve. And plant those with the end in mind of let them strip it, let them take it down, let them fertilize it, let them disturb the soil, And this is the fall crop, so the next crop's the spring crop of birds. Let's plant that overwintering stuff that time. Spring birds go down. Let's plant the stuff for, that will take us into fall for fall birds. And what I've learned this year is do not buy meat chickens in August. It, it made my life harder, but I tried to do it to get them to be part of this workshop in October. I'm glad that we're going to do it. We're going to have great chickens. But uh, a lot of birds died that wouldn't have died. Had I bought those birds right now, and been slaughtering them in November instead of October, I would have far less losses, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. And I would be able to do it the way I want to with minimal brooder time. And uh, I have some ideas on that as well. So birds need more protection early on, so we can design the paddock system with greater shelter for the first few weeks, as you, and then you should move the birds out, and time the weather on both sides of the year to the, the weather that it's, easy for those birds to accept on both sides of it. These are things that you can't learn without making the mistakes. You can learn if somebody else has already made the mistakes and is willing to teach you, but the reality is your, your, your mileage varies and your results will be different, and we've learned that on this site, and that is specific now to this site. Now, you could take that and shortcut your own learning, but you're still going to have to secret sauce it. You, you really are. So... The 1,500-gallon water catchment done, easy, adding because the, 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 the gutters were a pain in the ass with this thing because of the way the barn's built with the overhangs. And uh, I just got Joe and a, a local handyman and, and paid the guy that like knows exactly what he's doing with something like this and said, here, get it done. And I should have done that earlier. We'd already have had the water there, so that's done. Adding another tank now is simply set up the platform, put the tank on it, plumb in the water. And, and then we'll be harvesting both sides of the roof, um, which I think will be great. And I've got gutter on the front side of my 1,800-square-foot garage, so adding water catchment there is going to be very easy to do as well. And soon we'll have probably five to 10,000 gallons of water at any given time held all over the property. And, and that is going to do a lot. And that, you know, then we got another 24,000 gallons in the pool. And that pool water is our last-ditch drinking water. So all the rest of this water is available for the livestock and for the life systems. 
And that's, that's going to give us a lot of security. It's also going to give us a lot of flexibility. Um, I'm also decide, I've also decided flat out, uh, and Nick Bertner disagrees with my decision to do this, but that's because he wants to do things the Lawton way, and I like to do things everybody's way. Uh, I am pretty much going to put in Sepulcher style, one and a half meter high, Hugel culture beds, all across the front part of my property, uh, except where the gates are where people can get in. I'm just going to start, I don't care how much material I have to bring in, because I don't have the material here. I can't just dig it and do it the way Sep would, because there's not enough soil to work with here. It'll cost money, it'll take time, but if, I take, if it takes me three years to do it, and I do like you know one, and then I do another one, and then I do another one, so be it. So be it, and eventually that will screen out all the road noise and all the traffic, and it'll make this entryway that when you come into the property, you feel like you've left behind the rest of, of everything else. And that's my goal for the property. So that I'm going to start working on pretty soon, actually. Um, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things that you just start piling it up and doing it. And uh, it's one of those things, again, that I think people... I'll start on the side of the property that's not near the, the occupied neighbor structure. So that by the time I get down to that... So I'll work in that direction so that when they see this stuff being piled up, they're not going to be like, what is he doing? They'll already see the results of something completed. And frankly, I've, I've won their confidence over uh, quite a bit now anyway because what I call failure, other people around me look at as being pretty successful, honestly, because they don't know what the what, what it should look like, right? What it Or what it will look like in another year or two. Um, so I, I guess we're doing okay, really, even though I'm being kind of hard on myself. Um, I want to start beginning classes with better planning on more than just permaculture. And what I really need to do is bring Dorothy really up to speed as an event coordinator and stop even touching the booking and stuff. Like, I need to stop doing this thing where you guys reserve uh, your classes by email and doing it individually and all and controlling it. And I, I do that because, well, you know, the first couple ones I don't really know what I'm doing and I want to make sure I don't overbook it or something like that. Uh, but we need to just basically do like anybody else would and have the events published, you know, the next four events on the site, click here to sign up and let people just sign up in the order that, that you know, we put it out, it's live, claim your spot, Set the thing in PayPal so once, you know, uh, 30 are claimed, it shuts off. And, and, and let it go more like that and get more organized with that. Because I want to start doing more classes and events here with you guys. And I want to get out of just permaculture. Right now it's easy to do permaculture because that's the stuff I have to get done. But I also have to make sure that I'm making these opportunities for you guys to get here and learn things that aren't necessarily, like, You guys come in here so that I can get something done. Like, I want you guys coming here so that you can learn what you want to learn. So I want to get more into things like I want to do a thing with Stephen Harris on building a battery backup system. And I've started thinking about that. And my initial plan was, well, I'll build mine when you guys come here. And then I realized that's probably not the best way to do it. Probably the best way to do it, and I'm going to go out probably today and get the toolbox for it, and start piecing together the pieces is for me to build one in my truck, right? So just build it. And then what I'm thinking is, and we could probably do this in like February-ish with Steven, and it would be a great time to do it here because we could be in the garage. I've got three big bays in the garage. And, uh, you know, we could move stuff out of the way so we can get the vehicles in and have three TSP members that want to come to that that are local enough to drive in, that want to build one for themselves. 
And those three people have to provide, and we'll have you like coordinate with Steven to make sure you're not missing anything. You bring all the materials with you, and we'll build those three, and those three people get to come for free other than maybe pay for meals. Uh, but their contribution is they've provided the materials for learning. Since all have built one, all have been through it just like Steve has, and I'll be a better instructor and a better helper in helping you guys learn. And I won't be so concerned with learning myself because I'll already know that I'll be able to kind of step back out of the way and let you guys do the hands-on. And then that way there's three systems being built. There'll be mine sitting here to look at, and we'll get a real education in building backup power systems. Because when you build one of those... You could build anything. Seriously, I mean, it's no different. You build that, then building a stationary one in your house is easy. It's a cakewalk. Building one and integrating solar, no problem. So that's kind of what I'm thinking with, like, one of those. But also maybe doing some stuff like bring Patrick down, Patrick Rorman from MT Knives. He wants to do a knife sharpening class. Great. Well, what if we did a Kydex making class? I have some cool stuff coming for some of the people coming here that I wish I knew how to do Kydex well. Because... Um, Let me just say this. There's somebody out there that's good, good playing around with Kydex. I would like four sheaths made in Kydex for a Mora number two classic. Four, and I'll pay you for them. Just get in touch with me by email. Put Kydex for Jack in the subject line if you want to make four sheaths for me for Mora number two knives. Because uh, I don't have time to do it between now and October, but I have something kind of cool I'm doing with Mora number twos. And I want to get, I'm going to have them for the workshop. We'll use them for the chickens. But when the workshop's over, I'm going to give all four of them away to attendees. Uh, it's like door prizes. And there'll be some other ones as well. So, you know, I want to do classes like that. Like, let's do a Kydex class. Let's, let's learn to do Kydex. Let's learn to do knife making. Let's learn to do, um, you know, all of these things beyond just permaculture. And I, I think that we can have a lot of fun that way. And I will tell you guys... When we run these events, um, if you can come to one, come to one. It's not just the class. I've been to a lot of different events. The first one we had here, I was blown away by the success of it because it wasn't just the class and teaching it. It was watching the dynamic. I've never seen anything like it before. And, and I'll tell you, quite a few of the people coming this time are people that came to the first one. They're like, I don't even care what it is. I just want that experience. I want to feel that way again. Um, so I want to do what I can to get that more organized and run maybe six of these a year and have them planned out you know, six months ahead. Uh, I just need to get better at basically training Dorothy to do it so I can focus on the what and she can focus on the logistics. I am hesitant to turn it over to my intern, Josiah, not because I have any doubt in his ability to do it, I just want the system to be permanent, and I don't know how often I'll be running internships, and will the next intern be suited for that or suited for something different? So I'd rather have Dorothy, who I know is not going anywhere, taking care of that, and I just need to figure out how to turn that over to her and how to you know, make it a little bit easier. Um, and I guess it makes it a little bit more difficult that I don't want to give away any um, location details to people until they're confirmed students. Um, but yeah, definitely classes with better planning on a more just than permaculture. I'm also going to work really hard to increase composting on the property. We need to get worm bins in. We haven't done that yet. It's just like, it's just one more thing to do, you know, um, on the classes I'm going to do, a, I might do a class, a workshop that's nothing but beer 
making, mead making, and wine making. And showing you guys how the kegerator works and all that other stuff and brewing partial mash and full mash. And I think it would be great. And I know like a lot of people are like, I don't want to go to that. I bet you there's 20 people that do. So I need to start getting more diverse with that thing anyway. Um, but I want to increase the composting on all levels. What made me think of that is, you know, I need to get back into brewing like I used to, and that's part of why we put the kegerator system in, because I hate the bottle. But you brew, you end up with spent grains. Spent grains go to the livestock, which that increases the diversity of their manure, which increases their compost validity. So I'm starting to try to integrate things together. But definitely we need more composting. Our guest yesterday really got me thinking about that. I don't know that I'll plunk down 500 bucks for a Vortex brewer, um, but just doing you know multiple buckets of compost tea running off a single aerator, there's no reason I can't do five buckets, 25 gallons at a shot. And that technique works, and it's been proven to work, and that would be easy to set up. And it's one of those things I just need to set it up and get it going. Um, we're also going to be uh, we're waiting on a call from the feed company. They're just due to start getting their barley in. We're going to go get a bunch of sacks of barley. We're not going to do fodder for the, for the birds. We're just going to do sprouted grain. So just like you do sprouted grain in a jar, you rinse it every, you soak it for a day, then you rinse it every day till it sprouts, and then you use them as sprouted grains. We're just going to do that in five-gallon buckets. And we'll get one going, and then when it's into the rinse, we'll get another one going, and we'll end up with a bucket of food for them a day like that uh, as we finish them. And that'll be great for the quality of the meat, inexpensive feed, and it increases the weight of what you're feeding them uh, by about 33%. So that's another little thing we got going, uh, you know, coming in. And I'm starting to now, as we get into fall and it's not so hot, and I can think when I'm outside, try to, instead of worrying about just the big things, to find the little easy layups that make life better. Uh, start doing like, okay, that's something that I've got to, Bunch of buckets sitting out there that have holes in them for being planters in the past. And all I gotta do is put more holes in them so they drain better. So a drill, five minutes of work per bucket, and a, ba a bag of gra uh, barley, and we've got something pretty cool going on. And we also, I'm thinking, how do we take that nutrient water and make sure that we don't lose the nutrient value of that water? So these easy things, and it's because we've done the hard things first, that the easy things are starting to connect dots for us easier. One thing I want to teach myself this time around is when I get to the abundance state, when next year I'm going, this year's so much better. We got this and we got that. We've planted 70 trees that are permanent trees and 200 support species and we planted this and now we've got all this herb garden going and the aquaculture system's awesome that I don't forget this experience. That I don't lull myself back into it's easy. Because it does get easy. And when it gets easy, you forget. And I think that's a good lesson for everybody on these paths. When it gets easy, when you get to where you have this abundance and you're teaching it to others, which you should be, because you're not really doing anything in the world unless you're passing on what you've learned. And that doesn't mean everybody has to have a podcast or a blog, but you should be teaching somebody. I guarantee you somebody wants to learn. That when you're teaching it, you don't forget the struggle, how hard it was. You know, when you're trying to teach somebody to lay that mealworm into that eddy, when you're a trout fisherman, that you don't just go, look, right? You do it that way. You know why? So they can see that it's possible. And then you tell them, it's not going to work right away. Here's some things you can do to start getting on it. And you, just keep, you tell them, just keep doing it. Eventually, it'll happen. And when it does, you'll feel it. And that's, that's the same type 
of thing you have to be doing with these homesteading things. Um, and then in the meantime, what I've, I'm, you know, I've even learned more. I put, wrote it down in the show notes before I started talking, but as I've been talking, I need to realize I need to worry, learn, worry less about the initial results. And, you know, I, when I start thinking about what I'm not happy about, but then I start saying, well, what did work? And I start realizing, you know, we're going to probably harvest 200 pounds or more of Jerusalem artichoke. We're going to probably harvest 300 pounds or more of Japanese sweet potato from two beds. And we've done, I've just left them go. I've done nothing with those. And, and, and start actually appreciating more what does work and focusing less on what you haven't gotten done yet. And I think it's important for everybody out there. Because the reality is it doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. And it hasn't ever happened overnight for anyone. And when it does seem to happen overnight, it is two things. It's two things. It, it could be like what I did for Patrick with Empty Knives. And what I'm going to do soon with Project 20. And I haven't told you what it is yet, and I'm sorry. But there's just some other things going on. Um, people look at that and go, oh my God. Look at that overnight success. But it was five years of cultivating social capital to where I had enough buy-in from you guys because I had earned it. Not because I sold you on it, because I earned it. By consistently doing what I said I would do for you. And when I messed something up, coming back and going, sorry I screwed that up, guys. I'm sorry. And a lot of things when you look at a system move into abundance rapidly are because there were a lot of things done that you didn't know about. Or they were already in place when the person designing it got there. Trust me, you give me farmland in Pennsylvania in a year like this, and I'd be further along because the environment's easier. So many things are easier. You give me a place where I can dig a pond, just, I just bring in an excavator, just dig a pond, there's going to be a pond there, like now. Like, I won't even, like, it used to be where I'd be like, I don't know if the excavator's worth the money, and uh, I'll find the money. I know the long-term reward of that. It's just going to go in. You get here, and you go, well, I can't do that. So, that looks so much more impressive, but it's because the property was the type of property where that type of thing can be done, and that makes a very dramatic, immediate impact on the ecosystem and the land as a whole. And there's other places where you have to use more subtle techniques, more creative techniques, and they take longer to play out. And while you're doing that, you, you can't sweat that here's all the things I haven't done yet. You have to look more at here's the things I've done. And those of you with, you know, just the backyard gardens and all, they're much smaller projects, easier to get your arms around, you're still struggling. It's the same thing. Don't get discouraged. Um, and this lesson is not just about gardening and homesteading. It's in your preps. I don't have enough food put away yet. Just keep doing it, you will. I don't have enough uh, energy redundancy yet. Just keep doing it, you will. I don't know enough yet. Just keep learning, you will. I don't feel strong enough yet. Keep building your strength, you will. I don't have enough confidence yet. Confidence comes through action. And, 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 and that's the big lesson out of all this, that you can be the most confident person in the world, and at times you can still have your confidence shaken. It's psychological, though. It's not real. Do you see it for the shadow and the phantom that it is and realize it just means there's work to be done? If you can do that, you can create abundance in your life anywhere, whether it be in your social capital and in your interactions with the community, whether it be in business and success, whether it be with what you can grow and produce on a piece of property. You can do it everywhere because it's the same everywhere. And the challenges are unique, but they're also the same. 
When you can learn that, you can begin to give yourself permission to be creative and still have the confidence to stick to fundamentals. Those two things together are a great way to get on that path to a better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution